Hey, hey, AP Lit, what is up? It is Wednesday, April 22nd. Happy Earth Day. It's 8.23 p.m. And this is Mrs. Ford. And I'm going to get started with some discussion. First of all, I hope you guys watch my global feedback. It was really fun to read all of your answers. I mean, this is the closest I can come to really interacting with you. But, um... Yeah, it was really great. Everyone has such a different context for things. Um, many people have never been to a wedding. Other people have been to um, like different types of worship services. One person had been to a Mormon wedding. Um, some people have been watching like the Netflix series Unorthodox, which is about a woman who wants to leave her Jewish Orthodox family. Other people have talked about how there's really an absence of any type of faith in their family. Um, some people talk about being raised very Catholic. So it was just really interesting to see all the diverse answers. But as you're reading this book, I do want you to think about the ways that you've engaged with these themes before, whether that theme is tradition versus change, whether that theme is growing up in a culture that emphasizes traditional masculinity. Um, maybe it's the theme of a, uh, you know, wanting to question your faith, but not wanting to disrespect your culture or your family. Sorry, I take a sip of water. Anyway, it's just great to hear, hear, as weird as that may sound, your voices. So I'm going to talk about chapter 12. And, um, or no, that's a lie. I'm going to talk about chapters 13 through 16. And um, as I try to explain in the global feedback, this is kind of the part that we've all been waiting for where things really start to happen. And the first of all of this is going to start in chapter 13. So before the real action takes place, we realize that we have a funeral. And this is obviously the last, I shouldn't say obviously, but this is going to be the last Ebo custom that we're going to watch. And so we have a man who has been, you know, he's a great man in the clan. He was a noble warrior and his name was Izwedu. And they, he's died, so we get a funeral for him. Um, and I just want to read a little bit from page 120 where it says, They all wore smoked raffia skirts, and their bodies were painted with such chalk and charcoal. Now and again, an ancestral spirit or igugu appeared from the underworld, speaking in, tremulous, unearthly in a tremulous, unearthly voice and completely covered in raffia. Some of them were very violent, and there had been a mad rush for shelter earlier in the day when one appeared with a sharp machete and was only prevented from doing serious harm by two men who restrained him with some help of a strong rope around his waist. Um, so we have, we have, um, people that are, you know, they, they wear, excuse me, pardon the yawn. They wear certain things to the funeral. They put chalk and charcoal all over their body. And then they have these, um, they have these, like people who, I don't know, I don't want to say dress up because it's going to minimize it, but um, I'm just going to read this excerpt on 121 because I think it does a good job of summarizing it. Um, the land of the living was not far removed from the domain of the ancestors. There was coming and going between them, especially at festivals and also when an old man died because an old man was very close to the ancestors. A man's life from birth to death was a series of transition rites which brought him near and nearer to his ancestors. So I have to emphasize here, that I want you guys to think about whatever your culture believes about the afterlife, okay? 
and we don't have to get into it, like what you believe, but the afterlife is an important aspect of the Igbo culture. And I just want you to, I just want to try to give it, give you something to think about, like give you something to compare to. So in the Igbo culture, they believe that after you die, if you're not buried in the evil forest, and of course you don't want to be buried in the evil forest, but like if your body is properly taken care of and, you know, um, well, okay. So if you don't get buried in the evil forest, then you are, you become an ancestor that then gets worshiped by the living. Okay. And that's the whole objective. You want to live a life so that when you die, you are not put in the evil forest. And after that, after you die, you become sort of this immortal ancestor that people pray to and, and you become a really important figure after you die. Okay. So the best thing I can do is compare it to Coco, which I think I've talked about on the podcast, this Disney movie Coco, which is incredible. And in Coco, it's about the day of the dead. And I knew nothing about the day of the dead until I watched Coco. And it's basically this whole idea that, you know, in order for you to have an afterlife, you have to be remembered by the people that you love. That's like the theme. And it's really similar in the Evo culture in that your whole life objective is to be a worshiped ancestor after death. And that may sound bizarre, but what you want to think about is in other religions, like what is the objective in terms of, you know, how does your life dictate what happens to you after you die? So for many Western cultures, it's all about getting to heaven. At least it is in Christianity. Um, I don't really know about the Jewish culture. Students in the past have told me that some sects of Judaism believe that there is no afterlife. I don't know if that's true. Maybe someone can tell me. But definitely not in the way that Christianity believes in it, where they believe there's like a distinct heaven. So anyway, my point is, a lot of religions take the afterlife very seriously. And the Igbo people take the afterlife very seriously. And they believe that when you die, you become a worshipped ancestor. Okay. So then they say it was a great funeral. Um, We have, as evening drew near, the shouting and the firing of guns, the beating of drums, and the brandishing of clanging machetes increased. So we have a ceremony for a guy who died. They have a ceremony. Um, I think it would be interesting to study how people celebrate the whatever celebration of life or whatever you want to say. Like I, I do think it would be interesting to compare what we would call like a funeral service or procession or from, guys, so much yawning, one culture to the next. So, so we have this great funeral. Um, it's all good. And then page 122, something crazy happens. The drums and the dancing began again and reached fever heat. Darkness was around the corner and the burial was near. Guns fired the last salute and the cannon rest, the cannon rent the sky. And then from the center of the delirious fury came a cry of agony and shouts of horror. It was as if a spell had been cast. All was silent. In the center of the crowd was a boy in the center of the crowd, a boy lay in a pool of blood. It was the dead man's 16 year old son who was his brother and half brother who with his brothers and half brothers had been dancing the traditional farewell to their father. Okonkwo's gun had exploded and a piece of iron had pierced the boy's heart. So Okonkwo has accidentally killed this young man. And it says the confusion that followed was without parallel in the tradition of Umofia. Violent deaths were frequent, but nothing like this had ever happened. 
And then it tells us next, the only course open to Okakwo was to flee the clan. It was a crime against the earth goddess to kill a clansman, and the man who committed it must flee from the land. The crime was two, The crime was of two kinds, male and female. Okakwo had committed the, committed the female because he had been, he, it had been inadvertent, meaning he didn't mean to do it. He could return to the clan in seven years. Okay. So Okakwa has to leave, and he has to leave immediately. Not only that, but well, I'll get to the how, what they do to his house, but he's committed a crime, and it, it was not intentional, so his punishment is lessened. But their belief says that if you kill a clansman, you have to leave immediately for seven years. Okay. So that night they go home and they, they basically pack. The wives are crying. The kids are crying. And then it says, as soon as the day broke, a large crowd of men from Izuedu's quarter stormed Okonkwo's compound. They are dressed in garbs of war. They set fire to his houses, demolished his red walls, killed his animals, and destroyed his barn. It was justice of the earth goddess, and they were merely the messengers. They had no hatred in their hearts against Okonkwo. His greatest friend, Obiariko, was among them. They were merely cleansing the land with, with the cleansing the land which Okonkwo had polluted with the blood of the clansmen. Whoa. Now, I got to read this last part because it's really important. Obiariko was a man who thought about things. When the will of the goddess had been done, he sat down in his obi and mourned his friend's calamity. Why should a man suffer so grievously for an offense he had committed so inadvertently? But although he thought for a long time, he found no answer. He was merely led to greater complexities. He remembered his wife's twin children, whom he had thrown away. What, what crime had they committed? The earth had decreed that they were an offense on the land and must be destroyed. And if the clan did not exact punishment for an offense against the great goddess, her wrath was loosed on all the land and not just on the offender. As the elder said, if one finger brought oil, it soiled the others. So I just want to point out that in terms of character development, Obiurika is kind of a foil to Okonkwo. Okonkwo is like, I follow the rules. I'm a fundamentalist. And Obiurika he really questions the rules. He didn't. He doesn't want to burn down Okoko's house, and he doesn't really understand why this rule even exists. The guy did not mean to kill that kid, but he doesn't really know what to do. He reaches he reaches dead ends. He doesn't come to any conclusion. Okay, then whoa, things really start to happen. So first, Okonkwo gets banished or whatever you want to call it. He has to go to his mother's land, which is Mabanta. And again, I don't know if I'm saying that right. So he takes his whole family to Mabanta, and he's really received by Uchendu, um, his uncle. And they work really hard, and they, there's this comment that says, like, Okonkwo, you know, they all worked really hard, but it's like they're not young anymore, right? Okonkwo is no longer a young man, so it's just exhausting. He has to start from scratch. Um, he gets kind of, like, depressed, and uh, they say that he is bowed with grief, and he's just so... Um, sad in the sense that he had, was on the verge of being a great guy, a great guy, not a great guy, but like sort of one of these noble men in Umofia. And now he has to leave and start all over. So the new Chendo really gives him kind of a, I don't want to say a slap in the face, but there's this um, excerpt from the end of page 15 on 130 where he says to Okonkwo in front of their whole family, do you think you are the greatest sufferer in the world? Do you know that men are sometimes banished for life? Do you know that men sometimes lose all their yams and even their children? I had six wives once. I have none now except that young girl who knows not her right from her left. Well, she's probably equally disgusted with you, Uchendu. 
Sorry, that was my digression. Um, do you know how many children I have buried? Children I begot in my youth and strength? 22. I did not hang myself and I am still alive. If you think you are the greatest sufferer in the world, ask my daughter, Akueni, how many twins she has born and throw away. Have you not heard the song they sing when a woman dies? For whom is it well? For whom is it well? There is no one for whom it is well. I have no more to say to you. So he's kind of like, look, I know this sucks, but you're not the greatest sufferer in the world. All right. That's chapter 14. Chapter 15. So this is where things really start to get interesting. So Obirika shows up and he comes to visit Okonkwo every now and then. And the first time he shows up, it's Okonkwo's second year of exile. And they're all kind of sitting around, like, you know, chatting him and Uchendu and Obirika and Okonkwo. And, um, and Obirika is like, hey, did you guys hear about the village of Abame? And they say, no, like, what happened? And he talks about how, and this is all on page 133, talks about how the this one white guy showed up on an iron horse. And if you don't know what an iron horse is, it's a bike. And they go to the, or and he was a white. And notice how the other two guys don't even know what it means. They're like, oh, he was albino? And um, he's like, no, 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 he's not an albino. Um, he was a white man, but he's not an albino. Because there is such a thing as an African albino. So then he says, um, the, the people of Abame went to the Oracle and the Oracle, I'm going to read this on 133. The elders consulted their Oracle and it told them that the strange man would break their clan and spread destruction among them, which sadly ended up to be true. Um, the Oracle also said the other white men were on their way. They were locusts, it said, and that the first man was their harbinger sent to explore the, ter the terrain. So they killed him. So they see this white guy and the Oracle says, oh, the white people are going to bring destruction. So they're like, perfect, we'll kill him. So they kill him. They tie up the bike. And then the, then the, the, these guys show up looking for their guy, but nobody can understand each other. Everybody goes to the market and then they're all ambushed by these Europeans. Okay, notice. Sorry for the yawns. Um, notice that Okonkwo, everyone has their own take on this. Um, Uchendu says, you know, they should have never kill a man who says nothing. Okonkwo says they had been warned the danger was ahead. They should have armed themselves with their guns and their machetes, even when they went to market. So no, no of course, typical, typical Okonkwo, he's saying you should have been ready to, to, you know, fight back. Okay. Um, then, oh, I love this page on 136 when Obi-Arika and Okonkwo are talking. And remember, Obi-Arika and Okonkwo are foils. And so um, Obi-Arika brings him money and, you know, calories, and he's trying to take care of him by taking care of his yams at home. And Okonkwo says, I do not know how to thank you. And Obi-Arika says, I can tell you, said Obi-Arika, kill one of your sons for me. Now, this is obviously a joke, but Obi-Arika is trying to say, like, isn't this so crazy that we do this? And then Okonkwo says, that will not be enough. And that's a joke. And then Obirika says, then kill yourself. <laughs> but he's joking. He's just saying, you know, we do a little too much of this. Okay. Then two years later, Obirika goes to see Okonkwo again. But now things have really changed. So what happens is Obirika comes to see him because 
the missionaries, the white missionaries had come to Amofia, you know, to do their missionary work. Well, who was with them but Nooye? Huh. Now, this is really where things get interesting. I want to read this for a sec. He talks about seeing Nooye, and he says, what are you doing here? And it, it says, I am one of them, replied Nooye. How is your father? Obi-Eureka asked, not knowing what else to say. I don't know. He is not my father, said Nooye. So then, Okonkwo goes to see, or Obi-Eureka goes to see Okonkwo. Um, and he gets the whole story. So this is on your question sheet, but I'm very intrigued as to what you guys are going to say for this. Like Okonkwo, okay, so one of the questions is, what are the problems that exist in the Igbo culture? You know, because if the Christians would have showed up and nobody would have converted, okay, fine. But the thing is, is that a, the, some of the Igbo people are converting to Christianity. You know, you have to wonder, or ask yourself, like, is Christianity a way out for Nuoye? We've imagined that Christianity is going to show up and it's going to be, we as the reader are thinking, oh, Christianity is going to rob these people of their culture and belief system. But let's take a step back for a sec. You know, what, what outlet does Christianity offer people that they don't really get with the Igbo culture? And that seems like a legitimate question. So we find this interesting. I find this really interesting that Nooye has left. So then we get the whole story. And I think it's amazing when we get the interpreters, when they come and they explain Christianity to the Igbo and they tell the Igbo, this is on 139. All the gods you have are not gods at all. They are gods of deceit who tell you to kill your fellows and destroy innocent children. There is only one true God and he has the earth, the sky, you and me and all of us. And then another person says, you know, well, we pray to your gods, like who's going to protect us? We need our gods to protect us. And then the Christian, the missionary says, your gods are not alive and you cannot do and cannot do you any harm. They are pieces of wood and stone. I mean, that is a, quite a claim if you're an Igbo person. Somebody told you that your gods are dead and they don't count for anything. And you have to imagine, guys, and you'd be right in thinking this, like, you, we can put this to the test. And that's pretty much what's going to happen at some point. I don't know if it's going to happen next. So... At the end of the chapter, we get this idea of like how Nuoye, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the Trinity of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit that got him. It wasn't their explanation that got him. It was the music. It was the music that got him. Again, if we were in class, I would ask you, tell me about music in places of worship. You know, I think it's pretty hard to move people spiritually by just talking to them. I think music is an incredibly powerful tool when it comes to wanting to move someone spiritually. I'm not even talking about religion. I'm just saying in general. So I think it's interesting that Achebe makes this move to say, you know, he's not persuaded by their rhetoric. He's persuaded by how he feels when the music plays. Okay. So Nuoye is gone. That's crazy. He's a son. Um, so I want you to answer the questions. I have office hours tomorrow. Um, I'm sorry about all the yawning, but I am pretty tired tonight. Um, that's chapters 13 through 16. If you have questions, please email me or DM me or whatever. I don't care, but I want to hear your question. I'm very intrigued to, as to what you guys are going to say for your answers. Because now, like now, we don't have a binary, right? It's not like Christians bad, Africans good. And it's not um, Africans are, you know, savage and the Christians are to totally fine. It's 
it's none of those things. It's just complicated. We have, of course, we have humans on both sides. We have people having their freedoms restricted on both sides. Um, so this is kind of the fun part of the book is where we can grapple with these questions about identity and culture and what happens when two cultures collide. Okay. I'm done for the night. I will be back on Monday of next week. I love you guys. Talk to you later.